Good to see you all here, Labor Day weekend, 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's great to be together to worship, great to be together to come under the authority of God's Word. What an interesting passage that we're going to come under the authority of this morning. If you're paying attention to what uh, Will just read, it's very interesting. Now, we've been going through this book of Ecclesiastes, and the further we've gotten, kind of the more eclectic the book has become. In fact, I was uh, going back and listening to some other you know, churches and series and just kind of exploring how do they break down the book in other places and other teachers and preachers. Most of them skip these passages here near the end of Ecclesiastes. They get up to like chapter six, chapter seven, then they just kind of miraculously skip to chapter 11, chapter 12, and you know, leave out some of these things in the middle about serpents and pits and all these kinds of things. So what do we do with this passage? Well, we're going to dig into that this morning. Now, if you're new to fellowship, let me just tell you a little bit about how we teach here. We call it expositional teaching, expositional preaching, we will typically take a book of the Bible like Ecclesiastes and we'll just go through verse by verse, passage by passage. And I'm Rob, I'm one of two teaching pastors here. Lloyd is the other. We alternate back and forth. We have another campus in Franklin. And so I'm here this morning. Lloyd's in Franklin giving the same message he gave here last week. And next week I'll be at Franklin giving this message this morning that I'm delivering. And so we're walking through this book Together, and we've learned all kinds of things. In fact, you can kind of think about Ecclesiastes in two big parts. Part one is all about what's life about. Solomon's searching for answers. He's saying, is there any sense of meaning? Is there any long-term eternal significance to anything under the sun? And the answer he comes up with over and over again is no. Everything's vanity. You know, you try wealth, you try work, you try relationships, you try pleasure. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. And that's why, you know, commentators say this is a hard book to navigate because it seems so depressing. And yet what we've hopefully shown you throughout, and we're going to keep showing you as we kind of bring the book to an end in the next month or so, is there's a lot of life in this book too. There's a lot of hope in this book because it tells you where not to look for life. It eliminates some paths that you would tend to take on your own without wisdom, without careful instruction. And it points you to the only true path which is life with God, which we're going to talk about more as we get into the series. That's kind of all part one, is where not to look, all right? Don't go to all these things and hope to find life. Part two of the book is the part that we've been in now for, for a month or two, and it's the wisdom part. And I think it answers the question, if you're not going to find eternal significance and meaning on, in this life under the sun, how do we live? How do we navigate a place that's hard to exist in? How do we navigate a life that's unfair? How do we navigate a life where bad things happen to good people? How is the follower of God, in our case, the follower of Jesus Christ as Christians, how are we to live? And we've learned a few things about wisdom. Number one, wisdom is often counterintuitive. It's upside down. We kind of have that painting staying upside down for a few more weeks to remind us of that, that through creation, then the fall, the world upside down. And so if you want to live in an upside down world, how do you live? You live with upside down wisdom. You live with counterintuitive choices. So for example, one of the things that Solomon taught us is it's better to be in a house of mourning sometimes than a house of feasting because you're all gonna die and we need to remember that we're gonna die so that we live accordingly, so that we seize the day and so that we make every moment count, et cetera. Upside down wisdom. The second thing we learned about wisdom is that wisdom is the best thing under the sun because it helps you navigate life around the board of the game of life, to use that analogy. So it's difficult, it's hard. There's one thing you need more than anything else to navigate life, it's wisdom. And then last week, Lloyd talked about the opposite of wisdom, which is foolishness. You know, And he said the problem with foolishness is it only takes a little bit 
to ruin everything. And uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you were here last week, you heard, let's just say, a very colorful illustration involving a chocolate pie from the movie The Help. And Lloyd really went there. All right, now let me just say this. Uh, sometimes people come up to us and they say something like, I don't remember if this was you or Lloyd that said this, but, and then they go on to say it. That is not okay with this illustration. I'm just gonna say, I don't wanna hear you saying, I don't remember if it was Lloyd or you that used the chocolate pie illustration. That was Lloyd, all right? I'm gonna let him have all the credit for that. Now, here's the idea, though. If a tiny bit of foolishness ruins everything, and if everybody plays the fool, sometimes. What hope is there for us? And so he took us to the cross and the gospel of Jesus at the end of that message last week. Jesus, who not only died for us, but he lived the righteous life that we try to live and can't live. Right? He was the only one who never played the fool. Now, this week's text is kind of a collection of Solomon's wisdom. I've titled it Solomon's Life Lessons, and it kind of goes back to what I talked about a couple weeks ago. Of, look, it helps for you to, not, to slow down as you go through life and pause and think about what actually you've learned as you've gone through life. What are your life lessons? We're going to get some of Solomon's life lessons, and some are unusual to say the least, but they're a collection of Proverbs and if you think about what Proverbs are, oftentimes they require you to slow down and pause and reflect. And that's why a lot of us don't get the book of Proverbs sometimes. You know, you're reading it and you know, every third one makes sense and then the other two in the middle you just kind of skip over. It's like, ah, I don't know that that relates to me. It reminds me of my very first sermon I ever preached. I was at seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary in preaching class and you know, I, I came to seminary a little later in life. I, I left the corporate world where I was in Atlanta working for Chick-fil-A corporate. And so the, the other guys that were there, most of them are younger than me, but they'd all been to Bible college, you know, and they'd already been preaching. They'd already been delivering messages. And I kind of felt like I was behind. And here was my opportunity, my first sermon. And if I'm honest, you know, there's a lot of my flesh, you know, that I want to say, I want to show them that I can teach, that I can preach. Or maybe even answer the question, can I preach? I don't know if I can or not. I've never done it. And they, he's handing out the assignments on these little slips of paper. And our first sermons were all from the book of Proverbs. You know, it's like, keep it, you know, keep, keep it short and succinct, like one little core idea per sermon. And so they're handing out Proverbs, and I'm just thinking, you know, please let me get, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Please let me get Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, the easy one. And uh, he hands out my little slip of paper, and it says Proverbs 25, 16. I'm like, okay. I don't know what that is. I've never heard of that one. Let me, let me flip it over. So I turn over to the Bible in Proverbs 25, 16. It said, if you find honey, eat just enough. Too much and you'll vomit. And I, that, that was my reaction. I started laughing. I was like, there must be some kind of mistake. I took the little slip of paper up to the professor at the end. I said, maybe some digits were transposed. Maybe you meant Proverbs 16, 25 instead of 25, 16. He just kind of gave me that look. He's like, oh, you got the vomiting one, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, have fun with that. Now, here's what happened. I went home. Of course, the first thing I did was told my wife, look, look what they did to me. They gave me the vomiting passage. But, but uh, the more I, I prayed about that text, the more I thought about that text, the more I dug into the text, I realized it's not about honey. It's not about vomiting. What that verse is actually about is how do you deal with the good things in life? How do you deal with the pleasures of life? How do you deal with the things that God has given you that taste really good? Because from a Hebrew perspective, honey was as good as it gets, and we all have a tendency to overindulge in life's good things. And from that, I began to develop a theology of pleasure that actually Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. We've talked about that 
uh, earlier in the series. That came from my first sermon. What I realized was when you dig into a text, particularly a proverb, oftentimes there's more than you think there is, and that's the case in our passage this morning. There's a lot more going on here than snake charming, although we're going to talk about snake charming because that's just kind of fun. We're going to talk about it. Now, here's, here's what we're going to do through this text. I'm going to, it's far too many of these to dig into each uh, heavily, but I'm going to pick some to go a little bit deeper on, but I want to explain all of them and try to give a little bit of application. The theme overall in this text is this. How do you live as a wise person instead of a foolish person? Like what actually makes a difference? What can you practically, tangibly do that's going to make a difference in the path of your life from foolish path to a wise path. It's very practical. So here we go in verse eight. He who digs a pit may fall into it and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, uh, what most commentators will say about this verse is it's the idea of poetic justice. It's like, you know, if you have evil intentions, if you're digging a pit to try to trap someone, if you're breaking through a wall, maybe you're gonna steal or rob, like it's gonna come back to bite you. Life has a way of coming back to bite you. And that's kind of the idea. I thought about when we studied Esther in the series. Some of you here were for our Esther series. Do you remember Haman? You know, Haman was that wicked, evil man, built that huge, tall gallows for, for the Jewish man Mordecai that he was trying to kill, you know, his sworn enemy. Who ends up on the gallows that Haman built? Haman himself. It's this idea of poetic justice. The idea is throughout wisdom literature, you find this theme throughout all kinds of uh, literature from the, the ancient Near East. Now, Solomon, however, is about to kind of put an Ecclesiastes juke on it. All right, so listen to the next verse. He's going to sort of give us a different twist. Verse 9, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Those are normal jobs, okay? Nothing malicious, no evil intent about them. Solomon is saying, yes, you can get hurt by doing you know, evil, malicious things. You can also get hurt by just showing up to work. So you got a ditch digger, he's dug ditches for 20 years and, and one morning he, you know, he, he kisses his wife good morning and greets her and says bye to the family and goes out and digs ditches and for whatever reason, this one day, he trips, he stumbles, he falls, he breaks his neck, he dies. Why did that happen? Solomon is saying life is unpredictable. It's one of the themes, life under the sun throughout our book. Now, I don't think they had insurance Back then, I don't think that was a thing, but if they did, Solomon would be selling it. Okay, that verse is a little bit like the, uh, the Allstate commercial with mayhem. You know, mayhem's everywhere. Uh, you can just be quarrying stones, you can just be cutting down trees, and something can happen. Let's move on to verse 10. If the ax is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So he's saying, look, you can get hurt doing anything, but let me tell you a way that you're actually gonna be more successful. Imagine chopping wood with a dull ax. Okay, you can get the job done. You know, it is more dangerous, by the way, but Solomon's point here in verse 10 is that it's four to five times as much work as if you would actually just take the time to sharpen the blade, sharpen the saw. I think this is the idea of brain over brawn. It's the idea of work smarter, not work harder. But I think there's also something a little more subtle in that second half of the verse, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. I think here's what he's saying. If you don't know where you're going and you don't have a plan to get there and the right tools to get there, you're never gonna arrive. You're never gonna arrive. The fool is the one who just goes out and starts chopping trees, 
right? The fool is the one that doesn't take time to think about what he needs to succeed and his plan of action to succeed. Now, here's the application for us. The wise man, the wise woman, are the ones who know who they are, who know where they're trying to go, and have a plan to get there. So let me just ask you a few real practical questions in your life. What, what is it that you really hope for out of life? Do you want to have a great marriage? What is your plan for investing in it? When was the last time you sharpened the saw? You sharpened the axe blade? You want, uh, not literally, by the way, just in the context of marriage, I probably should just clarify that. You want to be a great parent? Okay. What kinds of tools do you need to be a great parent and where are you going to find them? Do you want your walk with God to be vibrant and life-giving? How are you pursuing that? Like, how, what's your plan to grow in your relationship with God? Nobody becomes the person that they want to be by just going out there and chopping down trees with a dull axe. Growth is a collaboration between you and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying it's all up to us by any means. It's actually the Holy Spirit that brings transformation. Transformation is God's domain. But the point here, and we know this to be true, is it doesn't happen by us just sitting around. Okay, just you know, coming home and plopping on the couch and turning on Netflix and letting that be like, that's my development strategy. That's just not, that's not doing it, right? The next verse is gonna go along with this same idea. If the serpent bites, verse 11, if the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Okay, let's do talk about snake charming a little bit. Okay, forget whatever comes to your mind with like the guy with the little flute, you know, sitting around. That's like Indian snake charming. That, that, that was not what, what Solomon would have had in mind at all. Do some research on snake charming. It's very interesting. Um, in the, the ancient Near East culture, so in Egypt and also li- likely in, in uh, ancient Israel at this time, uh, snakes were both feared you know, obviously, we still, I still fear snakes today. I, for whatever reason, I just don't like snakes at all. But they're all, they were also revered. Now, I don't revere snakes, okay? I don't think our culture does, but this culture did. Snakes were thought to have spiritual power. Now, that's kind of interesting given, you know, the role of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. But this is sort of a cross-cultural thing in the ancient Near East. Snakes were sort of thought to have spiritual uh, power. And so a snake charmer was, wasn't somebody like, you know, with a hat out asking for money while they entertain you with doing the snake. A snake charmer was someone who knew how to handle snakes and could actually, from a spiritual perspective too, help those snakes and their deadly venom and their, you know, evil spiritual power stay away from you in your home. So if you had a dangerous snake in your home, you would run for the snake charmer. Like you would get someone, call out, get the snake charmer. They'd run and get the snake charmer and then he would come back and he would handle the snake and he would remove the snake before you got bitten now. Think of it this way, a snake charmer in that sense was a combination of a uh, spiritual advisor and a pest control company. Okay, that's, re- that's really what this was. So if you're a snake charmer and you're sitting at home and you get a call that somebody needs you, okay, you're not gonna say, just hold on, I've got you know, three more episodes to watch in my binge watching of this series and then I'll come. Okay? It won't do you any good if they're already dead. If they've already bitten, the whole point of the charmer is to keep the snake from biting. So drop everything and keep going, or get going rather. Drop everything and get going. Here's the application for us. Do you know your purpose? Do you know what you're called to do? If you know, what would it look like for you to drop everything and get going on it? 
And what would it look like for you to be about the work that you are called to do, whether that's in your marriage, whether it's in your family, whether that's in your business, whether that's in your ministry, whether that's in your walk with God, what would that look like? Focus on what matters while there's still time to focus on it. That's the lesson of the snake charmer. There's no use in a snake charmer, right? If the person's already dead, make it your goal to know who you are. Make it your goal to know what you're called to do. Find the tools you need to do it. Sharpen the ax and then get going. Get to work. That's what Solomon's trying to teach us. Now, I'm going to skip the next three verses just for now. They're about our words. They're about our tongue. I'm going to bring them back in when we get to the last verse because the last verse is also about our words. And I'm going to talk about all of that together. So for now, just skip those three verses. Let's go to verse 15. We'll keep on rolling through. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. I read this verse to my wife and like neither one of us had any idea what it meant. You know, we just kind of just laughed. Like, what does that even mean? Okay, so then this is where commentaries help you. This is where, you know, looking at the original language can help a little bit. But there's a lot of mystery in this verse. Like there's not a lot of agreement what it means. And here's the best conclusion I've come to. I think this is an exaggerated saying. Probably it would have been recognized as something exaggerated out of the day. So imagine, you know, we have this saying, you know, uh, he's so foolish he couldn't find his way or he gets lost so much he couldn't find his way out of a wet paper sack you know, wet paper bag, you know. Uh, 4,000 years from now, if somebody read that, they'd have no clue what it meant either. They'd be like, well, okay, let's, let's research what sacks were like and paper bags were like back then or whatever. That's not the point. I think it's an idea of saying that the foolish person can't even do simple things. They can't even find their way to the city. And, and here's what I think is true. Bring this to our application a little bit. Um, people who don't have a clear objective, don't know who they are, don't know where their life is going, they tend to get tripped up and frustrated and exhausted by even the smallest things. It's like nothing comes easier or nothing comes uh, easy for them, right? It's sort of like the treadmill. Remember the illustration that Lloyd gave us of the treadmill at the beginning of the series? So you're working hard, working every day, doing everything, but where are you going? You don't know. In fact, if you don't know where you're going, you're probably not going anywhere. Right? It's the treadmill of life. This is what Solomon has talked about from time to time. A whole lot of movement, a whole lot of exasperation for no real gain. So I think for us, apply it this way. When you make poor choices with your work, with your marriage, with your family, with your walk, with God, everything just seems to get harder. Isn't that true? Like everything's just a little bit more difficult. Like things have a way of snowballing. Like one little bad choice, you know, really isn't it? The fly in the ointment Lloyd talked about last week or the the pie, I won't even say it, is to the place where even relatively simple things become nearly impossible. Now, the next two verses, 14 and 15, or rather 16 and 17, rather, um, we talked about them last week. Lloyd covered them last week, but I'm gonna read them again and just briefly explain them, but I won't spend long on them. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, or king is a child, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Here's the big idea. There's enough at stake with your choices and the implications of your choices just for you. But if you're a leader, i.e. if you're someone who has influence over other people, everybody in your wake feels the impact of your wisdom 
or your foolishness. And as Lloyd reminded us last week, if leadership is influence, all of us have influence over someone. So your wise choices, your poor choices affect more than you to the place where if you're at the very, very top, like a king in this context, Solomon is saying, woe to the land whose king is a fool. In other words, like everybody, like even down to the earth itself, the ground itself being labored by the laborers, everybody's gonna suffer when the guy at the top is making foolish choices. On the contrary, everyone can prosper when there is wisdom at the top. Verse 18, through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Indolence is a word you don't hear very much anymore. It just means laziness, all right? Through laziness, the rafters sag. Now, you know, you can just picture a home. In fact, you know, we're homeowners, and we've spent all Labor Day weekend working on our home, and it's amazing. We had our driveway pressure washed and our sidewalks pressure washed, and then you pressure wash that, pressure wash that, and then you realize how many weeds you have in the bed. And then, you know, because everything's now clean on the sidewalk, you realize that the brick is dirty, and, you know, it just it never ends, right? Through, through laziness, through indolence, the rafters sag. If you leave your home alone, it's not going to stay the way it is. It's going to deteriorate, right? Now, this fits the theme of the above verses. Life is hard. It really is. Sometimes you just want to escape from it all. I, I get it. Like, that's my instinct too. But Solomon is reminding us, you can't expect things to get better by just sitting around. Now, think about it this way. It's actually the brokenness of our planet that causes everything to deteriorate and decay. Here's a way to think about this theologically. Entropy, not progress, is now the governing principle of the universe post-Genesis 3, post-sin entering into the world. Entropy is what happened when beings made in the image of God, made for the purpose of actively reflecting his glory on the earth. We are made to work. We are made to rule under God's rulership. Entropy is what happens when those beings made in God's image step away from their God-giving calling and turn to other things. And this is exactly what's still happening today. So think about the creation itself as I read this verse one more time. Think about the whole creation. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Now think about this for a minute theologically. Jesus came to reverse the entropy. Okay, that's the significance of resurrection. Dead things are not supposed to come back to life. Right? Everything in this earth is dying. It's like the big clock that's slowly running out of time. Jesus comes, his body is resurrected, like the, literally the cells are rejuvenated of his body eternally. There's no more decay, no more entropy. And as his followers, as Christians, followers of Jesus, we are called, right, not, not just to sort of like help people um, find a place in heaven, although absolutely that's an important part of our calling. But even higher, you know, more broadly than that, I should say, we're called to offer glimpses and foretastes of a world to come where life will be the governing pattern, not death. That's what we're called to do. And a big part 
It's a big part of what it means to be his witnesses. It's not just the plan of salvation. It's just saying, listen, there's going to be a, a world coming where life's going to be the governing pattern, not death. I want to show you a glimpse of that. And, I, and I'm going to do something here in this earth. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care. I'm going to start a ministry. I'm going to, in my own little family, it's going to be a place where life's going to be bursting forth in a world of decay, in a world of entropy. And people are going to say, what is that? And you're going to say, you know what this is? It's just a small foretaste of what's to come through Jesus Christ who's making all things new. Okay, that's a bit of what it means to live life as witnesses of Christ. Now, we've got to keep going for the sake of time. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. I bet you've never heard this, preach, this verse preached. Right? Let me explain it and then I will apply it. Literally in the Hebrew, here's how it reads. Bread makes laughter. Bread makes laughter. Wine gladdens life. Now, here's the thing about bread, okay? Bread by itself doesn't make anyone laugh by itself. He's talking about a feast with friends. He's talking about a meal. Bread is representative of the feast. That's why the, the translation here in the, the, the NASB. So think about sitting down. You've, you've invited over your friends. You've invited over your family. You're breaking bread together. You're having a meal together. You've got good food. You've got good drink. Now, let's talk about this last part. Money is the answer to everything. In this context, the Hebrew word translated everything doesn't mean everything. It means money's the answer to everything I just mentioned to you. Money's the, money's the answer to everything I just talked about. Now, the, way that, the reason we have confidence in that interpretation is that more than once in Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses that same Hebrew word to really mean both. It's probably better translated both. So he's saying, look, uh, it's essentially would, would maybe better be translated this way. Bread makes laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money is the answer to both. In other words, it's money that makes it possible to enjoy that moment. It's money that buys the bread. It's money that buys the wine. You, you can kind of even take it even deeper. Um, and, I'll take, and I'll do that in just a minute. But have you noticed in Ecclesiastes that Solomon keeps coming back to food and drink and enjoying them? together in community. He has a thing for feasts, okay? He has a thing for meals. He keeps talking about them. Now think about this in the context of Solomon's perspective. Life under the sun is hard. Life under the sun is meaningless. Life under the sun is vanity. And he's right about all that, even though we don't like to admit it. Like, he's right. Life under the sun in a fallen, broken world is difficult. You work, you struggle all day long, you toil in this broken, difficult planet, and then evening comes, and you get to come and sit and rest with family and friends and taste delicious things and be filled and tell stories and laugh. Dinner is sacred. It's a place of rest. It's a place we, where we taste something other than toil, you see. This is one of the best things life has to offer. Now, here's the question. Where did the food come from? Money. Somebody had to buy it. Where did the drink come from? Somebody had to buy it. Where did the dining room table come from that all the friends and family gathered on? Somebody had to buy it. Where did the home come from that enables you to sit down together outside of the heat so that you can enjoy the gifts that God has given? Somebody bought it. So amidst a frustrating life of vanity, you have this sacred moment in time, and from a human perspective, money enables this good thing to happen. So here's what Solomon is saying. Don't be lazy. Work hard 
to earn money so you can buy food and you can buy drink and you can share them generously with your friends amidst a difficult, broken, fallen context under the sun. And as you're doing that, by the way, laugh together. Bread makes laughter. Wine adds sparkle to life. You need a little money to bring those things into your life. Okay, so work hard. That's the idea behind this. Now, let me pause for just a minute. I, I want to say something. I've got some passion around as one of your pastors. Will talked earlier about where we're going with our fellowship groups. And you need to know when this church was started 20 years ago, it was a church of small groups. And about five or six or eight years ago, I don't know exactly when it was, we just sort of took the, 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 the foot off the gas pedal on those groups. And we are now making a conscious, intentional decision to invite everybody back into a group. Because here's why. We believe that one of the best things in life as followers of Jesus is community. We also believe it's one of the best ways you can grow. So you want to sharpen your axe? Get in community. Do you want to have a little bit of a sacred space amidst what, what is a pretty chaotic you know, life under the sun, pursuing the good life around here in Williamson County? Get in community. Is it going to cost you something? It'll cost some time. For some of you, you know, it, it's hard to sort of step into a context and say, I'm willing to be known by people. What if I don't like those folks? You know, what if they're weird? I'll go ahead and tell you now, they're going to be weird, right? And they're going to say the same thing about you, okay? We're, we're, we're going to be weird together at times. We're going to be awkward together at times. But I cannot encourage you enough. Step into community. And this is your, your opportunity. Like, we're going to do this twice a year. It's right now. And if you miss it right now, you're going to have to wait until January. Step into community. Come on Friday night if you're a young adult. Come on Sunday if you're an other adult, <laughs> older adult. That's me. I don't know. We have a place for you. We've got plenty of space. All right. Back into the text. Verse 20. Here's where we're going to get into the words, and we're going to start to, to wrap it up with this because I think this is so powerful. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. This very, might be very likely where we got the phrase, a little bird told me, right? Remember that little birdie told me? Here's what Solomon's reminding us of. Our words can get us in trouble, so be careful. Even when you're in the privacy of your own home. And by the way, the reference there to bedchamber, all that means is like, that's like the most private place you have. It's just you and your own thoughts or you and your wife, you and your husband, just in that, the, the privacy of that space. Even there, don't curse a king. Even there, be careful with your Words. Be careful when you criticize anyone. Words have a way of catching up to you. Now let's go back up with that in mind to verse 12, and we'll go 12 to 14, and then we're going to unpack these verses because there's a lot of gold in these hills here in these verses. Look at verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and, at, and the end of it is wicked madness. Well, what a phrase, wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Here's how you might summarize these three verses. Your words contain the power of life and the power of death. How will you use them? How will you wield the power of your words. 
The complexity of our language, think about it this way, is one of the most important things that make human beings unique in all the creation. Okay, I believe it's a part, just a part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. We've been given the gift of language. We've talked about this before. Words are not passive. Words just don't kind of, you know, passively communicate information. Words do things. Words do work. Words break down. Words build up. They actually accomplish things. What a powerful gift God has given us. And with great power comes great responsibility. Your words, my words are the most important tool we have. And we can use them for spectacular good and we can use them for spectacular evil. So let's look back at verse 12 and we'll see this play out. Look at the first phrase of verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. And literally in the Hebrew, it's grace. Like it's the noun form. Words from the mouth of a wise man are grace. Okay, this is the power of words to encourage, to heal, to redeem, to restore to bind up the brokenhearted words can do all of that. Grace, think about this, guys. Grace is the domain of God himself. And what Solomon is saying is, you actually have that ability. You have that power. You have grace right here in your words. It's a gift that God has entrusted to us. When was the last time you intentionally wielded the power to give grace, to give life to another human being? Whenever that was, it wasn't recent enough. It might have been this morning, you know, but there's a sense that it's like, you can't do too much of that. You can't do too much of that. It's a life-giving power. This is what God does with his power is he gives grace. And this is our opportunity as well to give grace. We do that through words by and large. Here's what I think he's sort of getting at. Life under the sun is hard. We know that. That's a theme. Bad things happen to good people. You might just be quarrying stones or chopping down trees and tragedy might strike, but you, powerful human beings, have the power of grace in your words. You have the power to bring about something beautiful in the midst of a difficult life. Now, it goes the other way, too. The rest of verse 12, the lips of a fool consume him. What a word picture this is. Okay, this is the, the, being eaten alive by your own foolish lips. Okay, I can you just picture that a little bit? This is what Solomon's, he's trying to conjure this, this image. It's like the guy digging the hole with evil intentions and who's gonna end up at the bottom? The guy that dug the hole, all right? Another way to think about this um, the one who is ultimately most harmed by your words is the one from whose lips they emerged. It's just true. He goes on in verse 13, the beginning of his talking is folly and at the end of it is wicked madness, okay? Here's the snowball effect again. One small little foolish word has the tendency to roll down a hill pick up steam and gradually be become an avalanche of destruction. And who's standing at the bottom of the mountain? The guy who shouted up the word that caused the avalanche. Okay, your words contain the power of life and death. For which will you use them? Now, here's what I want to do to wrap up the message is I want to review Solomon's life lessons from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, at least the back half that we've studied this morning. 
And I want you to see how these pieces come together because there's some significance here. You know, in all the snake charming and falling in pits and chopping wood, there's some significant things for us. Just listen to the life lessons from this passage. The wise man knows who he wants to be, where he wants to go, and has a plan to get there. How are you doing on that one? Okay, pretty good, very good, not real well. I'm gonna pray for us in a minute, and I'm gonna pray specifically about that. I'm also gonna pray about this lesson, lesson number two. The wise man doesn't sit on his hands, but moves toward his God-given purpose with focus and energy. So the wise man knows where he wants to go, and he's moving toward it. Number three, the wise man uses his money to create a sacred space of generosity and life for others around a table. And I think that's both literal and figurative. A wise man uses his money to bring about spaces of grace and beauty to the people around him. And finally, the wise man understands the power of his words and wields that power to bring life, to bring grace again to the world around him. Now we end the chapter at the same place Lloyd ended the first half of the chapter last week, recognizing that although we all desire to be wise, all those things are like, yeah, I should probably do more of that. Yes, I'd like to be more of that kind of person. Every one of us has a little bit of foolishness in our hearts. Every one of us. I mean, there's no one here that could say in the last week you didn't utter a destructive word. Nobody can say that much less all the others. So although we, we can take steps forward and we must take steps forward, we'll never go all the way. So where else can we go ourselves but to the grace of God? Right? Who used his wealth figuratively to create a gracious space for us. Jesus who used his words never to harm but to bless. And even our salvation itself, is it not a, a word from God that justifies is it not a proclamation over us saying, that one, that one, that one, through faith in my son, God says, is cleared, is clean. So as is always the case, the only way you'll ever live out the word of God from Ecclesiastes 10 or from any other passage, here's the key, is if you look to the one who fulfilled the word of God and put your faith in him, to live his life through you. See what we just did there? The only way you're gonna live out the word of God is to look to the one who fulfilled the word of God. Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the word, but to fulfill the word. And then trust him to live his life through you. As follower of Jesus, I wanna pray for you in that. And so, you know, there's an old tradition in the church called the pastoral prayer. You know, we do it occasionally from time to time in different ways. Um, uh, I, I want as one of your pastors to pray for you this morning, and I'm gonna use those life lessons of Solomon as an outline. Okay, we're not gonna sing. There's not gonna be any music. There's just gonna be quiet space in my voice, someone whom God has called to serve you to shepherd you, to teach you as best as I can, so imperfectly, I want to be one of the ones to intercede for you. In that same preaching class 
that I referenced earlier, that first preaching class, they gave us a book by Haddon Robinson, okay, one of the, the gurus of preaching, and he has this very well-known book called Biblical Preaching. And I read the, uh, the inscription on that book. You know, he says, this is who I'm writing the book to. You know, here, here's who this book is to. And it, it stayed with me all these years as I've thought about my vocation that God has called me to. Here's what Haddon Robinson wrote. To the men and women who keep a sacred appointment on Sunday morning, bewildered by seductive voices, nursing wounds life has inflicted upon them, anxious about matters that do not matter, yet they come to listen for a clear word from God that speaks to their condition. He wrote that book for you to encourage people like me to faithfully deliver the word of God so that the words of God themselves will encourage you, will spur you on to love and good deeds. And that's what I wanna pray for as we close the service. So let's bow our heads together. Allow me to pray for you. Father, on behalf of this congregation, men and women, whom I, I know some, I don't know many, yet I love them, I care for them. You've called me to serve them. I pray for them this morning. I pray, Father, that they would know who they are, that they would know who you've called them to be, that they would find their identity in the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would see themselves humbly yet powerfully because they were made in your image, Father, and they have the spirit, your spirit inside of them. I pray, Father, that you would show them where you want them to go. I pray that you would do whatever it takes to give them the energy and the ability to take intentional steps to get there. I pray, Father, that they would resist the urge just to escape, to sit on their hands, to check out, to veg out, to disengage. That is not what you would call them to. I pray instead, Father, that you would help them move toward the purpose you've given them with clarity, with focus, with energy. Would you make them a generous community together? May they use their homes, their food, their dining room tables, their money to create sacred spaces where they can invite people over to their house, where they can join in community, where they can be together around a living room or a dinner table and rest from the difficulty of life and laugh and taste the goodness of God? Would you allow them to be that kind of witness to their neighbors, to Middle Tennessee? Would it even extend to the other ends of the world? God, I pray specifically for the new fellowship groups that we'll be launching. I thank you for the men and women, some of whom even in this room that have stepped up and said, yes, I'm willing to lead I pray, Father, that you would stir the hearts of the congregation as well to respond. And I pray that hundreds of people would say, I want that, I need that, I need to be in a community, I need to be focused on being known and knowing others and growing as we study God's word together. I pray, Father, that you would do that for the sake of your church, this body. Father, would you help the men and women that are listening to my voice right now understand the power of their own words 
It's just so hard. All of us are humbled by this, every one of us. Would you help them so they might use their words to bring life to others? Father, Jesus taught us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Would you do a deep work in the hearts of these men and these women? A work of redemption in their inner self that would flow out into their outer being. Father, I know there's deep wounds in this room. I know there are illnesses I know there are relational strains. I know there is deep grief. There is hardship in life under the sun. Would you speak to those that are feeling that this moment? Would you encourage them with your grace? Would you use your word to bring life, to bring hope, to point them to something solid they can stand on? Father, we all need forgiveness. We all need healing. We all need restoration in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in the room this morning that have never put their trust in Jesus, would you make that clear to them, that the, the, the invitation, the offer that's on the table, may they grab onto life. May they see themselves in need of grace and may they see Jesus Christ as the provider of grace and may they say yes to that offer. Would you do that even now in our midst? Pray that you'd be on the move in that way, Spirit. Finally, Father, as they go out in just a moment, I pray that you'd give them courage. They face a world that is sometimes wonderful and oftentimes hard. And I pray that you would give them endurance, steadfastness, step by step by step, that they would follow you. Not being confused about where their true home is, but leaning forward to what is yet to come with smiles on their faces, even though there may be tears in their eyes. And I pray for this according to the name of the one who loves them and knows them far more than I, according to the one who made it possible for us to pray such prayers with actual belief that a God is listening to us and will move on our behalf to accomplish his purpose in us, According to the one name, Jesus, in his great name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we will be sent out this way. In James chapter three, verses 13, 17, and 18, he talks about wisdom and I wanna invite you to consider these words as you go. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace Reap a harvest of righteousness. May that be the harvest that we begin to experience more and more. Go in peace and have a great week.